Take your copy of God's Word and open to Romans chapter 12. I have a feeling we're going to be saying that for a few weeks here. Romans chapter 12. As we opened this chapter a few weeks ago, we noted that this is one of the most interesting and compelling verses, set of verses, in all of Romans and actually in all the New Testament. In fact, you could say these first two verses are a compact summary of the entire Christian life. And what flows after them are the applications of this understanding of gospel application. I want to begin by reading uh, our text today, which is verses 3 through 8. But we need to get a running start because of the grammatical connection with verses 1 and 2. So follow along as I read Romans chapter 12, verse 1. Paul says, Therefore I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living and a holy sacrifice, pleasing or acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of Worship and do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what the will of God is that which is good and acceptable and perfect. For through the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you. Not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think, but to think so as to have sound or sober judgment, as God has allotted to each a measure of faith. For just as we have many members in one body and all the members do not have the same function, so we who are many are one body in Christ and individually, members, one of another. Since we have gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, each of us is to exercise them accordingly. If prophecy, according to the proportion of his faith. If service, in his serving. Or he who teaches, in his teaching. Or he who exhorts, in his exhortation. He who gives with liberality. He who leads with diligence, he who shows mercy with cheerfulness. Every generation of Christianity has its own battles for doctrinal clarity. Every generation since the founding of the church has wrestled with and struggled through debates and even fights and clarifications over what's true, over what God's word means and what God's word says and even what God's word is. And any study of church history is really a study in the church's efforts toward clarity on doctrinal and ecclesiological, or the doctrine of the church, matters and issues. I've certainly witnessed this in a microcosm of my own life and so have you. We've seen over the last few decades the debate over lordship salvation, right? Right? Must Jesus be Lord for him to be Savior, or is he merely Savior after which you might be able to make him Lord? The debate and ongoing deliberations over God's election and man's free will. The definition and parameters of the Bible's inerrancy. 
But I think as I ponder this, perhaps the, the one overarching issue that seems to be on the radar day in and day out, year in and year out, decade in and decade out of my own life and ministry is the understanding that people have in the church over spiritual gifts. Now, if you pull back a little bit and you think about this, Satan's strategy is obvious. We end up spending more time debating over the miraculous gifts, the charismatic gifts, than we ever do the function and implementation and execution of our own gifts in the body of Christ. Satan's genius. If he can keep us debating about the peripheral issues, he will certainly dissuade us from thinking about what's central and what the gifts are actually for and, and if or how we actually use our gifts. Let me ask you, do you know what your spiritual gifts are? Do you know what your spiritual gifts are or do you think those are for other people? We'll find out in this text over the next few weeks that every person has, I don't want to say a spiritual gifts. They have a, a whole cadre of spiritual gifts the way God has uniquely wired you with these gifts so that you can serve well in the body of Christ. Do you know what yours are? Are you using your gifts today, on this day, in the body of Christ, today at church? Have you come knowing how God has wired you and gifted you to be able to bless the people sitting around you. Are you using your spiritual gifts? Do you know your spiritual gifts? Now, we'll talk about this next uh, week, but I'm not asking if you've ever taken a spiritual gifts inventory. Anyone ever taken a spiritual gifts inventory? That was kind of um, uh, one of those uh, popular things to do a couple of decades ago. You would take this big kind of a test, and it would, at the end it would spit out this kind of computer formula. These are your spiritual gifts may be helpful in some measure. If they help you understand that you are gifted and you can execute some spiritual gifts in the church, I'm all for them. But I think it's more simple than those tests actually make it out to be. So for the next few studies, I'm not exactly sure how many, we're going to carefully examine the subject and nature of spiritual gifts. I want to address in probably a couple of weeks why our church doesn't hold to the miraculous gifts in these subcategories of spiritual gifts. And that's important. While we are called cessationists and we believe that some of the gifts have ceased and not all of them have ceased. But that's actually a subset of this study of spiritual gifts. We need to understand what they are, what they're for, what yours are, and how and if you're using them. Now, to begin with, I want you to go all the way back to the first chapter. Turn back to Romans chapter 1 for a moment. I want you to see this. Because Paul introduces spiritual gifts here only to pick up the full understanding and implementation and execution of them here in chapter 12. But look back at chapter 1, verse 12. This is the very beginning of his uh, uh, epistle. Chapter 1, actually, verse 11. Paul says, I want to come to Rome. I long to see you so that... I may impart some spiritual gift to you. He doesn't mean he will give them a gift. He means he will use his gift in the Roman church. Why? So that you 
may be established, grounded. And it goes further than that. That is that I, I may be encouraged together with you while among you, each of us by the other's faith, both yours and mine. Now, Paul does a couple of things there. He actually makes a parallel between spiritual gifts and their understanding of faith. He's going to do that in Romans 12 as well. That our faith in Christ, our understanding of Christ, actually solicits from Jesus the use of who we are, how he's wired us, how he's made us to establish one another, to make each other's faith stronger, to encourage one another, and that we can grow together in the faith as well. Listen, no hidden agenda. My prayer is over the next few weeks, you will leave with both the burden and the joy of knowing God has uniquely gifted you so that you can uniquely bless and encourage the people in our church. No one, no one is to sit on the bench in the body of Christ. Paul's understanding of spiritual gifts are clear. They're for the benefit of the people around us. Now, allow me to say from the beginning of the study that this could be, in fact, this should be, a most notable moment in the history of our church. This text, I don't want to overstate it, but I want to simply state it. This text in the coming weeks could and should actually change and redefine who we are and what we do here at Mission Road. It should clarify it should enable, it should encourage, it should ennoble, it should engage us with one another. If we understand this passage right and implement it with diligence, I really believe, without hyperbole, our church will not and cannot be the same. If on a Sunday we have several hundred adults, let's just say several hundred believers in our midst, we should have several hundred ministers and several hundred more ministries happening in our body. And that not just on Sunday, but throughout the week as well. So can I just grab your attention for a moment? I, I, I know that preachers are prone to, be, prone to be evangelistic, overstating things. It's not an overstatement to say that this text should, this text could change our church. It could and should change our lives. It could define, should define our ministries. I long to be, I pray constantly that we are a church who has a culture of esteeming God's values in our midst, even if the world doesn't get it. To be different. To be different with one another. To be different toward one another. And those values begin here in the household of God, within the household of God, toward one another. So, let me add to that, that if you really understand this passage, I think over the coming weeks, your understanding of church membership will change. And church membership should change. I think your understanding of our church should change. So that you're not looking at another church and what you possibly could or should do there, but you're looking at our church and saying, this is where God has planted me and he expects me to be faithful to this body, within this body toward one another. 
if we understand this passage correctly, you will be challenged again to turn from a consumeristic expectation of the church, where the church is just for you. Oh, it's for you if everyone executes their their, uh, spiritual gifts toward one another. But it's primarily a place that I am able to exercise my ministry toward others in the body. You'll be challenged again to consider your ministry here at Mission Road. You'll define it. You'll understand it. And so if I were to say to you, what's your spiritual gift and what's your ministry? You should be able to say to, not me, but to the Apostle Paul and ultimately to God, I know it. I know how God has wired me. I know what God expects of me. I know the target of what he wants me to aim for in my ministry. And you'll also be challenged again to take a hard look at yourself and your ministries in Mission Road Bible Church from Sunday morning to Saturday night. The older I I get, the longer I'm in ministry, I see more and more clearly not only the schemes of the devil against the church, but I see the genius of the Holy Spirit more and more. The way he orders and organizes his creation is amazing. It's fascinating. It's, It's intriguing. And perhaps my favorite way to see the organizing genius of the Holy Spirit is how he puts together a church with differing spiritual gifts. Can I ask you again, if I were to put you on the spot and say, what are your, your spiritual gifts, what, what would you say? Do you understand them? You're not like the, the sweet lady who once said, you know, my house is my spiritual gift. Well, that's not one in the list. Or, or my, my musical talent is my spiritual gifts. Well, that's not a spiritual gift. Or... Or my, my, my sports uh, uh, prowess is my spiritual gift. No, that's not in the list as well. Do you know your spiritual gifts? I wish we had time just to pause and just go around and interview everyone and say, do you know what your gifts are? And if your first response is, uh, then this passage is for you. I want you to be encouraged that you get to find it. Don't be discouraged that you don't know it. That's why we're here in this text. That's where the Holy Spirit has brought us in our study of Romans to understand. Now, let's back up for a second. We're we're just going to lay some some groundwork today for this study. First of all, you need to understand this. We'll say this over and over in the coming weeks. Listen, the theme that runs throughout this section is this. Unity through diversity. Diversity. It's counterintuitive to the world. Unity through diversity. It's kind of the opposite of, uh, uh, what's the big dating website called? Um, I forgot, what's it called? HarmonyElectronics.com or something. I'm not against those things, but it's the exact opposite. Where the idea is that You create unity through likeness. Just as a footnote, if if that had been the case for Kim and me, we would have never found each other on the internet. Ever, ever, never, ever, ever. She would have looked at my profile and said, never, ever, ever, ever. And I looked at her profile and said, I will never measure up to that. Church isn't like eHarmony. The church is designed to designate and define its unity, get this, among diversity, with differences. 
the exhortations in verses 3 to 8 flow out of a context. Now, as we've studied over and over and over uh, in, in the years that we've been together, one of the first things you look at when studying a passage is the grammar, right? Grammar matters. Now, look at the first word in verse 3, the text we're going to be looking at over the next few weeks. What's the first word in verse 3? What is it? Say it out loud. For. What does the word for mean? It means that this is dependent on the understanding of something else. It's, it's a conclusion to, an application of. So many of our passages that we know very well, we think stand on their own when they're actually connected to something else. What's the most famous verse in the Bible? John 3, 16. What's the first word? For. It actually depends on what's been going on before that. It's important to link it to that. And here, we have to link it to what's gone on before as well. For. So we go back up to the first two verses, which we studied for several weeks, and we understand that we are to have a renewed mind an expression of our commitment that involves our body, a transformed mind, a shunning of the worldliness that invades us. And because of that, the renewed mind is actually expressed in, guess what? The exercise of our spiritual gifts. It's interesting, he says, don't be conformed to this world, be renewed by the, by the uh, transformed mind that God gives you because of the gospel expressed in the word of God. And as you're doing that, First thing you're going to do in applying that renewed mind is you're going to exercise your spiritual gifts in the body with one another. It's the first practical application that Paul gives. Now let's take even a step further back than that because we're going to, we'll notice this in the outline today and in the coming weeks. There's a central metaphor that Paul uses here that you have to have a grasp on. It's a central metaphor that Paul employs. It is, it is a most important metaphor that you have to understand because he presses the illustration. He presses the metaphor more here than, uh, excuse me, in this metaphor than any other metaphor he uses. Now you say, what is this metaphor you're talking about? Paul talks about the church in a lot of ways. He uses illustrations. He's an excellent preacher, an excellent illustrator, an excellent teacher. All good teachers use illustrations. They're windows into which you can see what they mean. If you think about an illustration that way, that's the right way to understand it. You're explaining something, and an illustration is like cutting a hole in a wall, putting glass in the window, and saying, I want you to look into what I'm describing. That's what an illustration does. That's what a metaphor does, and that's what he does here. He does it elsewhere, though. He talks about the church, the body of Christ, as a I just used the metaphor, the body of Christ. He uses, uses the, uh, uh, the understanding of church, this illustrate, these illustrations to look into by calling us a new race, a bride, an army, a holy priesthood, a holy nation, a golden lampstand, a loaf of bread, a field, a vineyard, a sheepfold, a temple, a city, a family. But here, he uses the illustration of a body, a human body. It's his favorite illustration, his most elaborately explained illustration. It's a metaphor he uses more than any other one in the New Testament. Now just hold on. Don't try to turn here. We're going to go too fast. Just listen to how Paul talks about the, the church as a body, literally the body, the hands, the feet, the nose, the ears the muscles, the sinew, the tissue of the body of Christ. Listen to elsewhere. Just 
Just take this all in at one drink. We're going to look at this extensively in the coming weeks. But just listen in one shot, okay? In Romans 12, he says, obviously, we are uh, as, for as in one body, verse 4, we have many members. And that word members is body parts. 1 Corinthians 10, 17, we are many who are one body. 1 Corinthians 12, 12, just as one body is, as just as the body is one and has many parts, many members, all are members of the body, though many, they're one body, so it is with Christ. 1 Corinthians 12, 27, you are the body of Christ and individually parts of it, members of it. Ephesians 4, 12, equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. Ephesians 5.23, Christ is the head of the body, the church, his body, and he himself is its savior. Ephesians 5.30, we are members of Christ's body. Colossians 1.24, in my flesh, Paul said, I'm filling up that which is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church. So if you didn't get the the, the memo in those verses, Christ's body is his church, and we are each noses, ears, mouths, hands, feet in his body. Now, in some of his letters, let's be clear, Paul did talk about the body of Christ, and he meant the physical body of Jesus of Nazareth. He referred to that when he talked about the cross. He referred to Christ's body when he talked about the resurrection. He refers to Christ's body and his life in Romans 5 when he says he was one man and through him righteousness was imputed just as in Adam sin was imputed. But more than that, he spoke of the body of Christ being the people in the church. It's an illustration he presses. We're not even going to get to that illustration uh, today, but that's Critical to understand before we get into the, 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 the nuances that that's the illustration that he's going to be pressing. Our emphasis on a regenerate church membership here at Mission Road is grounded in part on this image of the body parts of Jesus being the church. Members of his body must be regenerate, believers, believers, and members of his body must be identified. We'll get into more of that in the coming weeks as well. Next week, by the way, we'll look at what this means specifically definitionally. But to begin with, we have to understand that the metaphor Paul is using, the metaphor he's going to press, is that Jesus is the head of a body that has parts, and we are those parts. So, let's ask the question, how can we more, be more faithful to our ministries as parts of Christ's body in the church? And for that, let me break this down into an outline that we're going to look at over the coming weeks. Three ingredients for faithful ministry in the body of Christ. Three ingredients for faithful ministry in the body of Christ. We had to understand what the body of Christ was for our outline to even make sense for this passage to have some context. Three ingredients for faithful ministry in the body of Christ. And I want to just tell you from the very beginning, I want to beg you, call you, encourage you to look at your own ministries and how you specifically can be more faithful in your ministry, in your gifts here in the body of Christ. 
Number one is this, a proper evaluation of self in the body of Christ. This is as far as we're going to get today. A proper evaluation of self, an understanding of yourself in the body of Christ. That's exactly where Paul begins when he outlines this ministry, these ministries that we're to have. Verse 3. We're to have renewed minds, transformed minds that aren't conformed to the world. Because of that, for, then he goes to himself, through the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think, but to think so as to have sober, sound judgment as God has allotted to each a measure of faith. As we said, this word for is connected to this idea of being renewed in our minds, transformed by our minds, thinking better thoughts about the gospel, not being conformed to the world and presenting our bodies as a living and holy sacrifice to Christ. It's connected for, once we do that, for, and now he talks about our ministries as a result. And again, it's amazing to me that the first application of presenting our bodies to Christ as a holy and acceptable sacrifice, of renewing our minds by not being conformed to the world, the first application of that is, drum roll, your ministry to the body of Christ. Shouldn't be a surprise. Remember the, the last meal that Jesus shared with his disciples before he was to be executed the following Friday morning on that Thursday night. He says in John 13, a new commandment I give to you, verse 34. This is my new commandment, that you love one another. That just didn't mean you have like fuzzy feelings for, for other people. Because he says, even as I have loved you, I've ministered to you so you minister to one another that you also love one another. And then he says this most amazing statement. By this, by loving one another, by this all men will know that you are my disciples. They'll know you're Christians if you have love for one another. Jesus said, the world will know that you love them not by you loving them. The world will know that you are mine if you love one another. That's the first and foremost principle of Christian ministry is commitment to the body of Christ. Exercising, in this context, your spiritual gifts for the good of the saints. Now let's break it down even further. He says, for through the grace given to me. Now this, we could spend the rest of the morning talking about the grace given to Paul, specifically how he identifies it. Romans 1.5, grace and apostleship given to, the, uh, to him to call the Gentiles to faith, he said. In Romans 15.15, 15, he says, grace was given to him to be a minister of Christ to the Gentiles. In 1 Corinthians 15.10, he says, the grace of apostleship was given to him at the work of God in his own life so that he could minister to others. Galatians 2.9, the grace given to him was evident to the church leaders. Ephesians 3.7, grace was given to Paul to be a servant of the gospel. Ephesians 4, 7, grace was given to him to be appointed by Christ to salvation. He constantly pointed to the things that he recognized that were amazing in his own understanding of the gospel as given graces. 
It's a great pattern there. Paul's going to motivate us by his own looking at the grace given to him and asking us to look at the grace given to us. So let me go back. I asked if you could identify your spiritual gifts. Can I ask you, do, could you identify if pushed this morning, could you identify the graces, the evidences of grace that God has given you in your life? I encourage you as a family, as a care group, to just spend some time weekly saying, what are the evidences of grace that we can identify in our lives? If you can begin identifying the evidences of grace in your life, your life will be changed. If you can begin identifying the evidences of grace in your life, you'll stop complaining. If you can begin identifying the evidences of grace in your life, people will be attracted to that understanding of grace in your life. Based on his own understanding of that, he says, I say to everyone, so I look at it myself, I say the evidences of grace, so I can say to everyone among you, not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think. Now we come to our proper understanding of self. Now, to understand why Paul said this, we have to assume that there were some people in the Roman church who were thinking too highly of themselves, right? Why would he have said that if it wasn't the case? There seems to have been a status problem in the church at Rome. People thinking too highly of themselves than they ought to have think. Now, we know from the text itself, at least a couple of options. We know the Jews from Romans chapter 2 had the tendency to think of themselves as better than the Gentiles. Why? Because they had the temple worship. They had the law. They had the word of God. They had the special choosing of God, the election of God. And Paul indicates in Romans 2 that they, they had a pretty high view of themselves, looking especially at the Gentile converts. But we also can see from Romans 9 through 12 that the Gentile converts perhaps had an issue with pride as well, looking down on the Jews. Why? Because God says through the Apostle Paul that the Jews were hardened. They were given hard hearts because they had all these blessings and didn't do the right things with them. So there was this internal conflict that they had between the Jews and the Gentiles, but there was even more than that. I think there were people who just flat out thought highly of themselves when they looked at others and compared themselves to them. Socially, more money than others. Personality-wise, more cool than others, more socially accepted than others. And Paul begins by saying, if you're going to use your spiritual gifts, it begins by looking at yourself and not thinking of yourself more highly than you ought to. I love how Ken Boa talks about this. He says, a renewed mind sees everything through mercy-colored glasses. Living sacrifices have no status, especially sacrifices who have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. It's a right understanding of ourselves. Listen, I don't think I have, to, I have to convince you that every one of us has a problem looking down on some people, right? It's intuitive. It, we, we just naturally do. 
Some people irritate us, bother us. And we think, ah, you're not in the same category or status than us. And yet, God has given people to you in the body of Christ who you would naturally look down upon in order that you would naturally be affected by that looking down upon them, seeing pride in your own heart and repenting. Paul says, we've each been given a measure of faith. What what does that mean? We've each been given the same faith and the same Lord he's talked about for now 11 chapters. We've been given a measure of faith. Our faith is in Christ, not in us. Paul told the Ephesians that each, is to, uh, each one of us is, has a grace given to us apportioned by Christ in Ephesians 4, 7. Peter wrote, each one should use whatever gift of grace he has received in order to serve others. And the point he's making here is that the gifts of God's grace, the measure of faith, he says here, that has been given to each believer levels the playing field at the cross. No one is better You may have more education. You may may have more gifts. You may have more prominent gifts. You may have more money. You may have more status. You may be more cool. You may have more social clout. Paul says, still, you shouldn't think more highly of yourself than you ought. No debtor to God's grace is any better than any other debtor to God's grace. So no one should think more highly of himself than he ought. Now, this is an interesting term. He says, but we're to have sound judgment. Sound judgment. Uh, What does that mean? The word sound, some of your translations may say sober judgment. It literally means non-drunk. You're not drunk. You're sober, not drunk. Sober judgment. Now, there's no introduction of alcohol into this verse, so what would we be drunk with that we need to sober up from? Robert Mounts says it so well. This is is really, really good. He says, they were to think of themselves with sober judgment, in verse 3, which suggests how out of touch with reality were the opinions they had of themselves than this. Since the metaphor suggests intoxication, one might say that they were in danger of becoming egoaholics. End quote. We're all intoxicated naturally with a high view of self. He says, Don't be drunk with your own estimation of yourself. When you're drunk, it causes your thinking not to be clear, right? Ephesians 5.18. When you're drunk with egotism, when you're drunk with pride, it causes you to think too highly of self and too wrongly about others. Now, this will come back to us. Look down at verse 16. Do not be haughty in mind, but we'll save that for verse 16. What he's saying here as he begins to talk about spiritual gifts and serving others is this. Humility, which is the opposite of pride, humility is the fuel for the engine of Christ-like service. Humility is the fuel for the engine of Christ-like service. Now, Philippians 2 talks about this in, in very specific terms. 
It says, have this attitude. In fact, maybe you should just turn over there very briefly to Philippians 2. Have this attitude, this attitude of humility, which also existed in Jesus himself. Do nothing, verse 3, Philippians 2, 3. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, here it is, regard one another as more important than yourselves. How do you do that? Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. And have this attitude, this humble attitude in yourself, which also existed in Christ. What is humility? It's looking out for others as more important than yourself at the expense of yourself. Dealing with personal pride is the most crucial battle, the most important battle of your Christian life, and certainly of mine as well. You understand that? Dealing with pride is the most important, crucial, centralized battle in your Christian experience. Pride has been described as the ego spasm of the mind, the cancer of the soul, the complete anti-God state of mind, the worship of self, the incarnation of selfishness. Now, I know some of you are saying, well, I'm not, I'm not a proud person. In fact, I'm, I'm just the opposite. I, I have issues. I, 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 I pity myself. This paragraph from John Piper, I've read to you in, in years past. I want to read it again. It's so, it's so penetrating. He says this, the nature and depth of human pride are illuminated by comparing boasting to self-pity, okay? So he's going to talk about human pride by comparing boasting to self-pity. Both are manifestations of pride. Boasting is the response of pride to success. Self-pity is the response of pride to suffering, Boasting says, I deserve admiration because I've achieved so much. Self-pity says, no, I deserve admiration because I've suffered so much. Boasting is the voice of pride in the heart of the strong. Self-pity is the voice of pride in the heart of the weak. Boasting sounds self-sufficient. Self-pity sounds self-sacrificing. Then he says this. The reason self-pity does not look like pride is that it appears to be needy. But the need arises from a wounded ego. The desire of the self-pitying is not really for others to see them as helpless, but as heroes. The need self-pity feels does not come from a sense of worthlessness, but from a sense sense of unrecognized worthiness. It is a response of unapplauded pride, end quote. In other words, there are those who are proud, who just love to boast in their accomplishments, think of their accomplishments, think of their successes. But there are those other proud people who say, well, nobody is applauding my helpless estate, so I am going to do what I can to get them to do that. You say, what's the point of that? Well, this comes into play when we think about our service ministries in the church. Oh, how many times? Can, can I just have 10 seconds of venting, pastoral venting? How many times? I have heard this. 
I'm tired of coming to church. I'm tired of going to care group. Nobody understands me. Nobody reaches out to me. Nobody appreciates me. And, and you might be right. Unfortunately, you might be right. But the response is not, well, I'm going to get everybody around you to make you feel better about yourself. The response is, who are you serving? Who are you caring for? Who are you sacrificing for? Do you see more ways people in the church have let you down and not fulfilled you in their service to you than you do the lapses in your own service to them? That's what this passage addresses. Do you think more highly of yourself than you ought? Well, that brings us to the last phrase in verse 3, back in Romans 12. God has given us a measure of faith and his faith in him and understanding the gospel, not in ourselves. Look, all of us can point to the church and say, there are ways the church has let me down, there are ways people have let me down, and you would be right. And we should fix that. But that question shouldn't be answered until after we answer the question, what am I doing to be that service to others? That's exactly what Paul has in mind here in these verses. There is no such thing as, in Paul's mind, of those who come and sit and leave, those who come and listen and leave. There's only the idea that you have been gifted by God in spiritual gifts and services to make others' lives better because he gifted you that way. And if everyone does that, then everyone's served. You have gifts from the Holy Spirit because you believe the gospel and God has changed you and transformed your, your entire existence. You know what it feels like? We're going to know pretty soon here. Do you know what it feels like? Do you remember what it feels like in the weeks right before Christmas? Maybe especially as a kid. You look at the tree and you see these wrapped gifts. And you think about that, that morning because... Godly people open their presents on Christmas morning, not Christmas Eve night, but that's another sermon. You think of that night or that morning when you're going to open your presents and you think, I have a gift. Someone has given me something. It's something for me to have and to enjoy. I can't wait to open that gift. I have to tell you, looking at the, what's, the passage that's coming before us, I feel like Christmas is coming in our church. God has given you gifts. I hope you've opened them. I hope you know what they are. In the coming few weeks, we are going to look under the tree, see what gifts he's given you, and you get to have them, use them, enjoy them, not only for your benefit, but for the people around you as well. So let me ask you again. Do you know your gifts? Do you think about yourself in a way that, that's not more highly than it should be, but as God has gifted me for the benefit of others, do you understand that you are God's gift to the church? We usually use that phrase negatively, don't we? Well, he thinks he's God's gift. She thinks he's God's gift. You are God's gift to the body of Christ here at Mission Road. And if you want to know how to maximize that joy of having that gift and using that gift, come back in the next few weeks.